sermon setup song, John. and laying in a manger. So you notice that I haven't given you a text. I'm not going to be doing a message from one of the more familiar texts, but rather the ever-loved Christmas text. Well, it'll be numbers of them, but if you want to turn to one, turn to Acts 3. where I'll begin in about verse... Well, I won't be doing it right away, but I'll get there. But that would be the one where you might want to follow along. And after that great preparation for the message, we had best begin with prayer. Lord God, we who are ever undeserving are so very thankful for the gift of your Son, our Savior, whom you sent to us that he might live like us, experience like us, die for us, that we might be saved through faith in him. That which we focus on this morning is certainly very familiar we do it each year and yet we admit readily that we don't begin to fully grasp what you have done in coming in human form the awesomeness of it the grace of it the joy in it the hardship the suffering the pain. Help us in our reflection this morning that we may properly rejoice in you and give you all the glory. We pray in Christ. Amen. The world was in a sorry state. The world has always been in a sorry state. So much sin ever since the fall. Degradation, awfulness. Good things as well, but to see to the inside of human beings would be to see honestly that which is so terrible. So much pride self-centeredness, selfishness. What could one man do? Everything. When that one man is God himself. A baby's hands in Bethlehem were small and softly curled but held within their dimpled grasp the hope of all the world. An artist drew a picture of a winter twilight 
trees heavily laden with snow, a dark and dreary house, lonely and desolate, in the midst of a blizzard. It was a muted, cold, barren, artistic rendering. Nothing much to look at. But then with one quick stroke of yellow, the artist painted a light in one window of that dreary house. And the effect was nothing short of magical. The entire scene was instantly transformed into a vision of comfort and cheer. The birth of Jesus Christ was just such a light in a dark, dark world. Only he could accomplish so much, so good, so glorious for so many. A baby's hands in Bethlehem were small and softly curled, but held within their dimpled grasp the hope of all the world. When I have been teaching in the Sunday school here in the sanctuary, you know that Pastor Eric and I have shared that over the year. We share the sermon time and the Sunday school time. When I have been teaching over the past year, I have been teaching through the Gospel of John. But the Gospel of John contains no birth narrative of Jesus Christ. And normally when I'm teaching or preaching somewhere in Scripture where it would be relevant, I like to use a passage from the book that I'm in but you don't find a, a classic one in the Gospel of John. So when we come to Christmas time, no passage in John's Gospel immediately suggests itself for our consideration. However, there is, I think, a Christmas verse in John's Gospel. And, and if we were to identify a Christmas verse in John's Gospel, I think it must be John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Incarnation, God himself, the creator of the vast universe, took on human form and tented or tabernacled among us. This is what Christmas is all about. Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant, a lowly slave, if you will, and was made in the likeness of men. Humbling himself, he was obedient even to the point of death. Death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2. Why did he do it? Why did God Almighty stoop so low? to be wrapped in strips of cloth and lie in a manger, being in or behind and overcrowded in? Why did he leave the perfection of heaven to live in this miserable world of sin and degradation? There is a picture in Milan, Italy, that shows a little cherub. You know the cherubs are the little angelic figures. 
And this little cherub in the picture is trying to feel one of the points of Jesus' crown of thorns with his finger. There's a look of wonder on the cherub's face because he has been told that the crown of thorns means agony. But he cannot feel it. It is all to him, this little cherub, angelic being, it is all to him incomprehensible. The spiritual suggestion in this picture is significant. The cherub cannot understand because he belongs to a different world. He has never been born into the condition in which sin and suffering and sacrifice become terms of awful import. God understands our human condition and predicament, unlike that cherub, and he came among us to fix it. And this is quite astounding, what our God has done. Whenever you find wherever you find, when and where, belief in God or in gods, and you find such belief all over the world in all generations. But wherever you find it, the most common aspect of such belief in God or the gods or deity, whatever form it takes, the most common aspect is the understanding that deity, God, the gods, are separate from us. Oh, they may in certain ways interact, but they are, they are distant from us. High and lofty, especially if one God is believed in. A God of infinite power, but mysterious. Beyond all human comprehension, we could never fully understand this being. So many see this God as stern and demanding. He is the source of all that is, but he's unaffected by it often seen as disinterested in it, aloof. Biblical faith alone, the biblical picture of the one true God alone, portrays him as not only absolutely holy, but also fully, completely loving, interacting, gracious, kind, gentle, caring, personal. A God who comes to us humbly to save us, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In Acts 3, here we go, beginning at verse 22 on through verse 26, the apostle Peter explains that God sent his son to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, just as God had promised to Abraham. Moses said, I'm reading the text now, verse 22 and following. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. That prophet that God raised up was the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward 
also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant or the promise which God made with your fathers saying to Abraham initially and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant or his son, the Savior, Jesus, and he sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Every one of you from your wicked ways. The world has always been in a sorry state. So God became a man to be a blessing to all those who have faith in him. This, I think, is the point of Christmas. Now, I'm afraid that the term blessing is used so often in so many contexts with somewhat altering meaning that it is really understood only rather vaguely today. We use the term a lot, but how much is it really understood? So let me explain this blessing of God coming as a man. Let me explain what it means. And this is coming from this text. First, the coming of Jesus is a blessing because it proves the truthfulness of our God. Jesus proves that God keeps his word. He is trustworthy. Moses and all the prophets from Samuel on down predicted the coming of the Messiah. God's promise to Abraham related Because the blessing on all the families of the earth is the blessing of relationship to Israel's Messiah, to the world's Messiah. So when Jesus came, he confirmed the truth of all these promises. He showed that God is trustworthy. God keeps his word. In Romans 15 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul said... Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That would mean to the Jews. To show God's truthfulness, said Paul, in order to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Could it have been stated more clearly than that? Christ came to earth as a man in part to prove that God tells the truth, to prove that God keeps his promises. Christmas means, therefore, God can be trusted. Wherever this blessing that God is truth, and that God speaks truth, and that his word is truth, wherever and whenever this blessing is forsaken, moral and spiritual life disintegrates. The foundation of all that is good and decent, ethical and moral life, is God's truthfulness. Any society that forsakes the centrality of the absolute truthfulness of God forsakes the foundation, the only good foundation of said society. The foundation of all morality, the foundation of beauty, Where God and his word are not seen as the existence and the anchor of truth, life simply crumbles 
and breaks down. Oh, it may not always look like it, but it does from inside out. And nothing where this is forsaken is close, not even in the same universe, if you will, what, to what it can be, to what it could be, where this truth is not forsaken. Our culture today is increasingly in chaos because it is turned away from God's truth. It was not so at the founding of our country, but it has increasingly turned away from God's truth. As long as Americans tolerate and advocate as a whole abortion, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, racism, rampant materialism, self-righteousness, self-centeredness, the autonomous and defiant self-identification of transgenderism, and so much more that is contrary and rebellious toward God's good created order and design. As long as our courts surrender to lawlessness and refuse to punish criminals, as long as our borders are massively breached and drugs and terrorists are granted unopposed access, as long as our political leaders in their authority will not recognize or submit to God-given authority, our society teeters on the brink of disaster and desolation. Pluralism has been the modus operandi of America for some time now. All views are thought and considered to be acceptable except biblical Christianity. Tolerance of all groups, all views, is a high American value unless one is a Caucasian male, unless one is a woman who opposes transgender athletes, unless anyone especially Jews, support Israel's response to horrific terror. Many of us look at our country today compared to the country of our childhood, even just that far back, a country which was not at all perfect, but comparing it to the country today, we wonder because we seem in our time today to have lost our collective mind. As America forsakes its foundation in the truth and morality of our Creator, we go nowhere but downhill. Wherever the God of the Bible is forsaken, we are hurtling toward utter destruction. Christ in Christmas is the reassertion of the foundation of all truth and goodness and beauty because Christmas means God is truthful. He keeps his promises. God's character, his truthfulness, his holiness, his goodness, his love is constant in a universe of flux. God's truthfulness is the unwavering absolute. If we forsake the truth of God, or when we forsake the one who is the way and the truth and the life, then it is anchors up 
the rudder is loose, the keel is broken, and the ship of life, political life, social life, educational life, scientific life, family life, religious life, is simply at the mercy of the winds of human wishes. So this Christmas, I say to you with all my heart, demonstrating the truthfulness of God is a great blessing. Give that blessing to your children. Say to the next generation again and again, God is truth. God keeps his word. God does not lie. God can be trusted. Say it and communicate it with evidence for it. That's the first part of the blessing this morning. Receive it as a wonderful Christmas gift and give it to as many people as you can, this gospel of truth of salvation in Christ alone. Second, the coming of God himself in the flesh is a blessing because he came as a prophet like Moses or as a kind of, if you will, second Moses. About six centuries before Christ, the richest man in the world, Croesus, asked the wisest philosopher of the time, Thales, what is God? What is God? Simple question. Thales asked for a day in which to deliberate, contemplate, think it through, that he might formulate a worthy answer to the question, what is God? And then he asked for another day, and then for another, and then another, and then another, and then another, until at length Thales confessed to Croesus, I am not able to answer the question. And the longer that he deliberated, the more difficult it was for him even to frame the answer to the question, what is God? God became a man, incarnation. God became a prophet like Moses, that we might understand him. Oh, we will never understand him fully, but that we might more fully understand him and that he might more perfectly explain himself to us. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as he raised me up. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Jesus, of course, is that prophet. He fulfilled that promise. But some will say, well, I don't think that's really much of a blessing because Moses, remember, was a lawgiver, not a grace giver. I don't want another Moses. I want something that cancels out Moses. I want grace. But that response is a misunderstanding. In Acts 3, Peter is declaring good news to, un, to us because one like Moses has come. The promise is fulfilled. Peter saw no conflict between the grace of Jesus and the law of Moses. This is often thought to be in conflict, and many struggle with the concept of God that has a lot of the emphasis of Moses, but they're not in any conflict at all. The truth is, we need a prophet like Moses every bit as much as a graceful savior. If God is truth, 
And if his truthfulness is the foundation of all truth and goodness and beauty, then we need someone to reveal to us this truth of God. Unless there is revelation, unless there is a prophet to tell us, Jesus declared, remember, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is what it means to be a new Moses. He is a truth establisher. He is a way shower. He is a life giver. This is not the opposite of grace. This is grace. Grace not only pardons sin, it also shows us the path to life. We need not only Jesus as a priest, we need him as a prophet. If every lifestyle led to paradise, if in fact, as it is often claimed, all roads lead to heaven, then we would need no prophet like Moses. We would need no one to show us the way to life because we're all on that way, allegedly. But quite obviously, all lifestyles do not lead to paradise. All roads do not lead to heaven. Most lead to destruction. That's exactly what Peter told us in Acts 3, verse 23. And it will be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. There is a narrow way that leads to life. There is a broad way that leads to destruction. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. So God sent his son Jesus as a prophet like Moses to lead us on the one and to warn us against the other way. Oftentimes in war, soldiers are faced with the danger of landmines. If a field of such buried bombs is to be traversed, and one soldier knows the way so as not to detonate any of the mines, and if that soldier then comes and offers to take you safely across, would you consider it legalistic or ungracious if he said, I know the way across, follow me. If you don't follow me, you will be blown to pieces. It would not be legalistic or ungracious. It would be the most loving and gracious thing for that soldier to demand that you follow him and to warn you that there is only destruction if you fail to follow him. This is what the Apostle Peter is saying about Jesus. He is the new Moses. He is the one who guides us through the wilderness of life and brings us to the promised land of heaven if we will follow him, if we will believe in him, if we will surrender to him. There are landmines of sin that can destroy us. Follow Jesus and we can be safe. He is the way and the truth and the life. That's the second blessing offered this morning. Christmas means, first, that God is truthful. And second, Christmas means that a new Moses has come to show us this truth of God. 
and lead us to life and save us from destruction. Third, the coming of Jesus is a blessing because he turns us away from our wickedness. We frequently don't want to admit our wickedness. We're happy enough to identify wickedness in others, but not often in self. But he comes to turn us away from our fault, our wickedness. Acts 3, verse 26 said, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you in turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Jesus came not just to show us the truth of God, like a new Moses, but also to work that truth into us by turning us in a continual process of sanctification away from evil. Notice at the end of verse 26 that it says he is turning every one of you from your wickedness. What does that mean? Surely not all those who heard Peter were turned from wickedness. Not even all those who are hurting. And certainly that's true of so many others since that time. I think it means there is a potential turning in everyone in God's grace. If they will receive it and act on it. If they will trust God for it. We can see this condition in Acts 15 and verse 9. At the end of the verse, God cleansed their hearts by faith. Faith is the instrument of God's cleansing, the instrument by which he turns us from wickedness. We see it again in Acts 26 and verse 18. At the end of that verse, those who are sanctified by faith in me, in Jesus. Faith is God's instrument of sanctification. The way he turns us from our sinful behavior. The third blessing thus offered to us this morning is the active help of Jesus in overcoming wickedness. He will turn us from evil. Christmas means, first, that God is truthful. It means, second, that a prophet like Moses has come to show us the way of truth and life. And it means, third, that the new Moses does not show us the way and then stand aside and watch us struggle. Instead, he joins us on the way. He gets involved in our lives and actively turns us away from evil and works the truth of God into us as we receive it by faith. Jesus' burden is light. His yoke is easy. Because he doesn't merely lay a burden of righteousness on us. He enables us to carry it out by his power and through his spirit. Jesus is indeed full of grace and truth toward us. So now back to John chapter 1 and verse 14. The word of God, the truth of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man in order to bless us by saving us from our sins. As the great 4th century church father, Athanasius, wrote in his classic work on the Incarnation, and I quote, what else could he possibly do 
being God, but renew his image in mankind so that through it men might once more come to know him. And how could this be done save by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior Jesus Christ? Men could not have done it, for they are only made after the image. Nor could angels have done it, for they are not the images of God. The word of God came in his own person because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man after the image. Sin is a human problem, a universal human problem. And to deal with it, God became a man. He was born of a virgin. He was laid in a manger. God alone has the capability to deal with sin because we humans cannot, cannot save ourselves. So God became a man, born of a virgin, initially cared for in that manger, in a crude stable behind an inn. But not a man only, a man who was also the one true God. So beware the idols of destruction, as Herbert Schlossberg wrote in his book about the conflict of Christian faith and American culture. We no longer live in the America that was founded. We live in an America that has tragically gone off course and in a world that is off course. But our core problem is not out there in the culture. It's easy for us to constantly shoot at the culture, which has plenty of problems, as we do. But our core problem is not really out there in the culture with all of its temptations to evil. Our core problem is here within ourselves, in our own hearts and lives. Our basic difficulty is not that we live in a fallen world. It's our own sin. It's our own disobedience for which we are responsible as part of that fallen world. The world needs Jesus to be sure, just as we do most emphatically. He came to die for us because without him, we are lost in our sin. Those who blame all of their problems on the world or the devil or on others, often particular others, see everything as a matter of what others have done to them. They do not need, they do not see that they, do, that they need to receive the Savior. It is only when you understand that your problem is not out there, but it is in you. It is you yourself. It is only when you understand that that you can quit complaining about everyone and everyone else and acknowledge and confess and repent your own sin, your own wickedness, and then and only then are you ready, ready to believe in Jesus and receive the salvation that he offers. Some years ago, an S-4 submarine was rammed by another ship and quickly sank. The entire crew was trapped in its prison house of death. 
Ships rushed to the scene of this disaster off the coast of Massachusetts. We don't know what took place down in the sub, but we can be sure that the men who manned that sub clung fiercely to life as the oxygen slowly gave out. A diver placed his helmeted ear to the side of the vessel and listened, and he heard a tapping noise. Someone was tapping out a question in the dots and dashes of Morse code. The question came slowly. Is there any hope? That's the cry of sunken humanity. Buried in a sea of sin. Sin of our own making. Sin of our own doing. But there is indeed hope. We are reminded of this hope each Christmas. God became a man of flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. We can read about his glory. The glory of the unique one from the Father. The glory of God himself, full of grace and truth. Who became like us and came to us. That we might know him. That we might live with him forever. Believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And hope is realized in your life. Now and forevermore. A baby's hands in Bethlehem were small and softly curled, but held within their dimpled grasp the hope of all the world. Let's pray. Lord, I pray we receive that. We live in that, in him, in you. And that we dedicate the whole of our lives to sharing that with others. To helping others to know you better and better and better. Help us in this endeavor through your spirit. Guide us, lead us forward as your soldiers in the faith that we may bring you glory and honor in all that we say, in all that we do, in all that we are. In Christ we pray. Amen. Rise, if you will, for the benediction. May God bless you in these things this Christmas as every one. And may we now be thankful for the food which we are soon to receive by his grace. Stay here, but prepare now to eat together. In Christ we pray. Amen.